Uh, last Sunday, one of the families brought their, their kids in, and I happened to be in the lobby, and, and their, their little boy was, I don't know, he's, he's a little over a year old, and his tongue was hanging out like this. He, uh, uh, you know, and I'm like, how cute, the little boy, you know. And maybe think back to uh, our kids. When our kids were young, we had one of our boys, and uh, when he was school age, starting to learn how to read and write and, and math and all those things, uh, anytime he would focus really hard on his schoolwork, his tongue would hang out this like this. And then anytime, anytime, his, anytime his tongue was out, you knew he was working really hard, focusing on his schoolwork, and it was great. We loved uh, that. It's fun reminiscing about our kids. And then I was thinking about this as I thought about my son with his tongue out. I thought, you know, when our kids were young, uh, my wife homeschooled our kids, which is really good. She did it because if I did it, these kids would be messed up. But my wife did a good job and uh, kind of teaching those kids. I remember that time when she was teaching them letters, you know, teaching them how to, to read the letter and sound it out. And it was so fun because I would come home and I'd get to see them getting it, right? And maybe you can remember those days. For some of you, it was a long time ago. For some of you, it wasn't that long ago. Some of you haven't been there yet. I hope you get there. But it was so exciting for me to come home from work because my kids would say, Dad, Dad, I want to read you a book. And so they'd get the book out. And it would be Matt sat on cat. And I'm like, yes, Matt should have done that. Good job, Matt. But yeah, like I'm all excited because my kids, they're, they're getting it, right? They're putting it together. As parents, we have those times when our kids get it and it's kind of an exciting time. Maybe it's when they're trying to first learn how to read. Or, or maybe your kids, you see them as they interact with other kids and they're, they're, they're showing Christ-like values and they're like, yes, this is awesome. They're getting it. Those things along the way where you're just like, man, I, I love it. Maybe it's that day when your kids realize that the rules, make sure your kids are listening right now, the rules your parents have put in place are not to, to rob you of joy, but they're there to protect you because we love you. And it's like, maybe there's a day where kids get it, and you're like, yes, this is great. Well, we celebrate those days. There are also, let's just acknowledge, there are also times when it, maybe even as adults that we just don't get it, right? We don't, we don't, we don't get it. We can't put it all together. Was, uh, was uh, thinking about this. I ran into a, a family friend not long ago. Uh, this is a family friend. When I was growing up, we used to do holidays with, this fam with, with these friends, and, and it was great. And she saw me, and she's like, oh, you're a pastor. And I'm like, oh, boy. And so she gets in this long conversation with me, and she says, you know, Kevin, I'm, I'm in my 70s. My health is declining. I'm struggling physically. I realize I'm going to have years ahead of me. And she said, Kevin, me and my husband, we've been married for 55 years. 55 years we've been married, and I'm realizing he never really got what marriage was about. I'm going, well, well, tell me about that. Why do you feel that way? And she said, well, you know, my husband, he had this idea that as long as he provides for me, as long as he brings home money and gives me a house and some car and, and maybe we travel once in a while, as long as he provides financially for me, then he's done his job as a husband. She said, the problem is, is for the last 55 years, he's lived his life and I've lived mine. And now that I'm in this season where I'm realizing I'm going to have these health issues for probably the rest of my life, I'm not sure he's concerned enough to actually take care of me. She said, Kevin, 
I don't think he ever got what marriage was about. Marriage was, <coughs> I'm getting emotional. Actually, I just got a frog in my throat. She said, marriage is about two hearts becoming one, being so committed to each other, they'll do anything for each other. She said, I just don't think after 55 years, I don't think my husband got it. You know, in terms of faith, a lot of times we live our faith kind of like that husband, right? Where we're looking and we're saying, well, well, I know what it means to be a good Christian, right? It's going through all the religious motions. It's, it, it's doing certain things. It's looking a certain part. It's kind of like the husband, hey, pr I'm providing for you financially. But at times it, in our faith, it's almost as if we focus on that, it's almost like we don't really get it. You see, there's going to be a response to our faith. There should be a response that, to our faith that God is looking for. That if we are generally coming into a relationship with God, there should be this response that he should see from us that he's looking for. That's what we're going to get into today. Uh, we've been in this series for the past four months. Five, I don't know. I can't even keep that track that long anymore. Uh, called The Story, where we're trying to see the meta-narrative of the Bible. In the Bible, you have all these different books and all these different characters and all these different things happening, but they're actually one big story, all pointing to Jesus. And we are at the climax a couple of weeks ago where Jesus uh, suffered on the cross in our place. He died in our place and he rose from the grave. That's the climax of the story. And now we're in the New Testament where we're trying to see how do we live in response to what Jesus did for us on the cross. It's been a really good series. We've talked about how part of our way that we respond to or live in response to what Jesus did is we carry on his mission of making disciples of all nations, of making followers of Jesus Christ. We talked about this last week, how we don't do this in our own strength, but we do this in the power of the Holy Spirit that fuels us and empowers us to live on mission for the kingdom of God. Well, what happened in the New Testament is as the church was obedient to the mission of God, the church began to grow. There's all these different people, Jews and Gentiles and peoples from all over the world that were coming to join the church and be a part of the mission of God. And here's what happens. Maybe you've experienced this. You start bringing people together, people with different backgrounds, different circumstances, different experiences, and sometimes that leads to conflict. Sometimes that leads to, well, you're not doing it the way I want it done. You're not doing it the way I think it should be done. Why are we doing this? And today our passage is going to deal with the beauty of the church, how we as believers, how we belong to one another in the body of Christ. We actually belong to one another. And scripture is going to instruct us that we are to be intentional about pursuing and maintaining the unity that we have with one another, with other believers in the local church, as well as how we are to work to strengthen and build up one another. So, the book of Ephesians chapter 4 is what Jake read for us this morning. Uh, little context for the book of Ephesians. The past three chapters, the apostle Paul has, has given maybe one of the clearest descriptions of what it means to actually have a relationship with God. He was very clear. We are saved by grace alone, not by works. And Paul was very clear about this, that you come into a relationship with God, not based on what you've done, but what Jesus has done in your place through his sacrifice. One of the clearest descriptions. And then our text in Ephesians chapter 4, it starts out and says, therefore. 
one of those corny preacher jokes. Anytime you see therefore, you have to ask, what is therefore, therefore? And what Paul is trying to do is he's trying to connect what he previously talked about. He just talked about the gospel. About, it's all about Jesus, what he's done in our place. He's trying to connect that with what he's about to say. Trying to bridge these two. And so what he's saying is, if you really grasp this, if you grasp what Jesus has done for you, if you grasp the gospel, if you get it, then here's the response, verse 3. I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling for which you are called. That word calling, we kind of get confused about that. What that means is, is God draws us into a relationship with him. Scripture is clear on this regard, that, that none of us comes to God on our own. Not one of us had this great idea. We woke up on our own and said, I'm going to start following after God. No, we are called by God. Scripture says we love him because he first loved us. He took the first step to initiate a relationship with us. So Paul says that we are to walk worthy walk in a way to live a life that is worthy of him calling us into a relationship with him. What he's saying is if we really get the gospel, if we really get what Jesus has done for us, there's going to be a proper response, a proper way to live. And this is where we get into it. What is that proper way to live? He answers for us in verse 3. He says, verse 3, that we be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Paul is saying, this is what he's saying. He's saying, if you've, if you've gotten the gospel, if you've experienced what Jesus has done for you, if you've come into a relationship with him, then he says this is a response that we should be eager to see peace and unity amongst other Christians, amongst the church. And why is that? Why should that be our response to the gospel is that we pursue this unity with one another? Because... Salvation is absolutely a personal experience. Your salvation is between you and God. Your, your spouse can't save you. Your parents, their faith can't save you. Like, like your faith is between you and God. And it's a personal faith, but it is also a communal faith. This is why in Scripture, when it talks about salvation, it has this language about adoption. But as, as Christians, we are adopted into the family of God. We become brothers and sisters in Christ. See, when we put our faith in Jesus, we actually become a part of what's called the body of Christ. We become a part of the family of God. We become a part of the church. And because of that, because our faith brings us into this relationship with other believers, Paul says that we should be eager to maintain the unity and the peace that we have with other believers within the church. In fact, I want you to notice in verse 3, notice the word it says, you should be eager to maintain the unity. This kind of jumped off the page to me because do you realize unity is not something we create? Unity is not something we go and we find and we try and make happen in our own. No, Unity is given to us by God. Think about, it, think about it this way. Think about my hand, right? Like, here's my hand. I didn't create the unity of this hand, right? I didn't Frankenstein this hand together. These fingers, God put these fingers on this hand, not me, right? So I didn't create the unity of this hand. My job is not to create unity. My job is to maintain the unity of my hand, which is why when I go out in the garage, I'm very careful with my table saw 
Because if I start losing fingers, my hand is not going to be as strong. It's not going to be as effective as the way it's supposed to be. This is what Paul's talking about. That we are the body of Christ right here. We don't create it. We don't maintain it. God's done the part. But we have to work to strive to maintain the unity. If this hand is going to be effective, we've got to work hard at keeping it together and keeping it unified so we can be used for the purposes and what God wants to do. Listen, if you are a believer in Christ, like it or not, look around you. Because you are a part of the body of Christ. You are a part of the family of God. And if we really understand what Jesus has done for us, if we grasp the gospel, if we get it, then we will be eager to maintain the unity and the peace that we have with one another. And the question then becomes, well, we have all these different people in this room from all these different backgrounds, all these different experiences. Like, like what, what makes us unified? What makes us one? Well, in verse 3, Paul talked about the bonds of peace. We have these bonds that tie us together. You know what those bonds are? Look at verse 4. He says, therefore, there is one body. That's the family of God. There is one spirit, just as you've been called There's one hope, there's one Lord, there's one faith, there's one baptism, there's one God. Paul is saying there's one way to God. There's not many ways. There there is one way to God. There is one Lord, there's one faith, there's one baptism. There's only one way that we come into a relationship with him. And that is the bond that ties us together. Even though in this room we come from different backgrounds, We have different uh, uh, experiences, different personalities. We have different temperaments. What we have in common by a relationship with Jesus Christ, that is greater and stronger than anything that we have that would make us different and unique. That our faith, our salvation, our coming to, to, to faith in God through Jesus Christ That is a bond that ties us together, and it is greater than anything that would separate us. And again, I want to make sure we get this. Paul is saying, like, if we get that, if we get the gospel, if we grasp what Jesus has done for us, that we will be eager to maintain the unity and the peace within the body of Christ. Now, I've been a Christian for 22 years. Some of you have been a Christian a lot longer. Is that, hard to, is that hard to do? Is it hard for us to maintain the unity in the church and, 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 and the peace with one another? <laughs> People are difficult. Amen? People are difficult. This is why Paul gives us some characteristics that Christians should embody that, that help us to maintain that unity. Look what he says in, in verse 4, or excuse me, in verse 2. He says, you guard that unity with humility. You know what humility is? Humility is recognizing that I'm not any better than anybody else in this room. I'm not any better off than anybody else. You know what's so funny? If for some reason the church get this, gets this so wrong, right? We come into church and what do we do? We compare ourselves with one another. We look at somebody and we're like, well, I may be bad, but I've never done what this guy's done. Oh, you don't even know. Well, I'm better than that person. Look at all I've done. I haven't done... 
And, and we compare ourselves like on this, this chart. We're like, well, I'm, I'm better than them and them and them. Makes me feel superior. Or, or, or maybe it makes us self-righteous. Does that sound like what should be long in the church? How much division and conflict and destruction have churches experienced because we lack humility, because we think we're better than someone else, because we don't recognize that even our greatest works are filthy rags in consideration of all that God has done for us. No, Paul says if you're going to maintain unity in the church, you've got to practice humility. You've got to be humble. He says in verse 2, you've got to have gentleness and patience. Patience. You've got to bear with one another in love. I love that idea of, of bearing with one another. Because, again, let's be honest, you gather people together. There are some annoying people out there, isn't there? Let, I, let's just acknowledge, there are some people with some weird idiosyncrasies. You know, like people who walk in the room, or when they leave, and they're like, goodbye. Anybody know who does that? We have some weird idiosyncrasies. People can frustrate us. They can be annoying. They can whatever. And many of us, we are so quick. We are so quick to be a bear to another person. Oh, I'm going to treat them like, oh, I can't stand them. And I'm going to make sure they know it. And we're impatient and we're unkind. Yeah, listen to this. God says, because this is so important, that if we're going to maintain unity, we have to bear with one another. You know what that means? We've got to put up with one another. We've got to be willing to put up with people that are different than us, that have weird, weird dispositions, and, they, and they, they talk differently than we do, and they, they, they have a different level of hygiene, and they, they, they do things that frustrate us. He says we bear with one another. We put up with them. We're to be patient with them. We're to be kind with them. We're to be gentle with them. You know what the reality is? Isn't that what God has done with, with us? That he puts up with us? He bears with us? Puts up with our stubbornness? Puts up with our selfishness? Our foolishness? And here we are. We sit here and we presume upon God's patience. We expect God to be gentle to us and to bear with us. And Paul's saying, if we expect that from God, then we also should be willing to do the same thing for the people around us, that we bear with one another. And let me just make a bold statement here. Some of us, this is our disposition. If you're a person who loves to stir the pot, if you're a person who loves a little bit of controversy, who gossips about the church, Listen, this is bold, but I think Paul would say to you, you're not embracing the gospel. You're not getting what Jesus has done for you. You're not prioritizing to maintain the unity, but rather you are actually tearing apart the church, the body of Christ. Some of us would say, well, you know, Pastor, my personality is, my personality is I don't really need other people. You know, I'm not connected to the church because, you know, I'm an introvert. I, I like my personal time. Well, 
Maybe the reason you love your personal time is because, it's because the only person you really love is yourself. Maybe that's why you don't want to be involved in the lives of other Christians. Because you don't really love them. You love yourself more than you love anybody else. I think Paul is trying to make this as personal as it can be. That if we get the gospel, what Jesus has done for us, then we will be intentional to maintain the unity with other believers. <laughs> but he's going to give us even more. Secondly, he's going to say you're going to be willing to give yourself to the building up of others. Here's what he says in verse 7. By the grace you've been giving each of us according to the measure of Christ's gift, therefore it says in Psalm 68, that when he ascended on high, he led host, uh, the host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. He's talking about spiritual gifts. It says in verse 10 that when he, uh, when he descended, here's picturing Jesus, he was up in heaven, he descended to the earth, he died on the cross, he descended into the grave, and then he ascended far above the heavens so he might fill us. Okay, we've got the picture of the gospel. Jesus came to earth, he lived, he died for us, he was buried, he rose up to heaven. And it says that he did that to fill us. See, see his salvation doesn't just give us heaven when we die, but his salvation actually fills us with him. This is what we talked about last week. That as, as believers, we get the gift of the Holy Spirit. Remember who the Holy Spirit is? The Holy Spirit is God living inside of us. That's why when Jesus said, when I go back up to heaven, it's good that I go so you can experience the Holy Spirit. So we, have the, we are filled with the Holy Spirit, and as we're filled with the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit gives us these spiritual gifts. Spiritual gifts where we don't just experience the power of God in us, but we experience the power of God working through us. Spiritual gifts. We could spend a long time talking about spiritual gifts. Here's, here's the way I would describe what spiritual gifts are. Spiritual gifts are abilities or experiences that God has given to you. Every Christian has them. Every Christian has at least one spiritual gift. Like, well, what are the spiritual gifts? I don't have time to cover the hundreds of spiritual gifts. They're, they're, uh, Jake and I wrote down four characteristics of spiritual gifts. Uh, there are the ministering gifts. This is where uh, we're able to meet relational, physical needs of other people. There are the speaking gifts, where we have the ability to speak biblical truth and the gospel into specific situations. There are manifestation gifts where God works through a believer to demonstrate his supernatural power. There are foundational gifts that deal with the, the foundation, and the planting and growth and establishment of the local church. Listen, spiritual gifts, every Christian has them. But here's the question. If we have the gifts, what are they used for? What are the gifts supposed to be used for? Now, oftentimes, when we allow, when we're not practicing that humility, our pride says, well, my gift shows how great I am. Look how good I am. Look at all the stuff I do for God. Now, actually, look, look at what Paul says in verse 12. Spiritual gifts are the, for the building up of the body of Christ. Spiritual gifts are used 
for the building up of others within the church. We use our gifts, our experiences, our abilities to strengthen one another, to make the church stronger. That we have these, these gifts and we use them to invest in one another to continue to point each other to Jesus. Listen, spiritual gifts are so significant. And the idea that every believer has them, they're so significant that, that Paul is going to say, God actually, uh, he, he, uh, he shapes the church culture based on these spiritual gifts. Look what he says in verse 11. God has given apostles and prophets and evangelists and shepherds and pastors and teachers. He's given you leaders of the church. What for? To equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for the building up the body of Christ. See, at some point, I don't know when it was, at some point in history, we assumed that pastors and leaders of the church, we do the work of the ministry. Our job is to love people and to meet needs and to lead everything. And the church's role, the church's role is to pay a pastor. You pay a pastor, and then you get the benefits of coming and, and having them lead worship and having them preach sermons and having a pastor who serves you. And you come to church and you feel really good, and then you leave encouraged because you've had someone who's given to you the whole time. Now, let me just say, I've never felt that pressure here at Restoration Church. But how many of us recognize that pressure in the culture? Churches, the ministry of the church happens because we pay leaders to do that. But Paul just said that pastors, our primary role, and I'll be honest, this is challenging and convicting to me. My primary role is to equip the church to do the work of the ministry. My job is to help you discern what your spiritual gifts are and to put those gifts into practice doing ministry to one another in the local church. And you know what happens when we do that? You know what happens when we recognize we've all been given these gifts and these abilities by God and we use them to build up the church? He gives us the answer. Verse 13 that we will attain unity of the faith, that we will have a maturity. Verse 16, he says that the whole body, the church, would be fitted and knit together so that every ligament, every individual working together, promotes the growth of the body that builds itself up in love. Did you hear that? If we grasp this idea, that as Christians, we're called to maintain the unity of the church. As Christians, we're called to use our gifts for the building up of the church, for the support of one another. He says, if we do that, that promotes the growth of the body and we build ourselves up in love, I think that means the church becomes better and stronger. You know, as I read that, I had the picture of, of a horse. Now, I know some of you are cowboys. I didn't grow up like that. I've ridden a horse a couple of times. It's not... They scare me. They're so big and powerful. But if you've ever watched a horse run, it is marvelous. You see this horse, his entire body is in motion. You've got these legs and these shoulders and the body and the neck and the head, and they're all in motion. They're all working together to cause this horse to move with such beauty and grace 
and power. Listen, I think that's the way the church is supposed to be. That each of us as individuals, we work together to use our gifts for the building up of the body. And it becomes this beautiful thing where the church is in motion, the church is strong, the church is growing. We become better together. In fact, here's our summary for this entire message. That as Christians, in response to the grace of God, or in response to what he's done for us on the cross, that we must maintain the unity of the church. We must work to strengthen one another. We've got to be doing these things. You know, as I was writing this this week, I thought, this might be one of the tougher and maybe more direct messages that I've preached in a while. Because I don't think Paul leaves us much room. He doesn't leave us much room, much wiggle room to think, well, I don't know if that's really what he's trying to say. No, I think Paul is saying, listen, if you're a Christian, if you get the gospel, you've got to prioritize the commitment and engagement with the church You've got to be serious about serving one another. So a couple of points of application, and then we'll wrap up. Number one, here's a question I want to ask you this morning. Are you actively pursuing the unity of the church? Are you actively pursuing the unity of our church? Are you contributing to the unity of the church, or are you contributing to the disunity, and the discord within the church. See, there's a, there's a movie. Uh, I don't know about you. I love to watch all the sports movies. They're all the same plot line. If you notice, all the sports movies, they're all the same plot line. But I love watching every one of them again and again. And there's a movie uh, star Samuel, Samuel L. Jackson called Coach Carter. And there's a story where, where, where he becomes a coach of this, this inner city basketball team. And this team, man, they're, they're a team that lacks... Uh, discipline and respect. And so this coach comes in, Coach Carter comes in, and he's like, here's what we're going to do. We're going to flip this program upside down, and he installs this high level of discipline. So this is what's expected to be on this team. And one of the players on the team, he's like, this is dumb. I'm not going to have all these rules, and he quits. Well, the movie goes on, and that player eventually comes back, and he's like, man, I really want to rejoin the team. Like, that was a good thing. And so Coach Carter says, well, sure, you can join the team on a condition. Before I let you come back in, you have to, you have to do 2,500 push-ups. And you have to do 1,000 suicides, which are basically laps in the gym. You've got to do 2,500 push-ups and 1,000 laps before the end of practice. And it was an impossible task. The player didn't even come close to finishing by the end of practice. And then there's this powerful scene. This player, he didn't meet the demands. He's not going to be able to join the team. Until one of, the, one of the other players, he says this. He says, you know, when one of us struggles, we all struggle. So that guy drops down and starts doing push-ups. I'll help you do the push-ups. The rest of the team jumps in. Some of them are doing push-ups, some of them doing laps. They help him accomplish the task that was set before him. That is true of the church as well. 
See, one of the family values that we have here at Restoration Church is we're people that we, we belong together. We belong together. That, that because of our faith in Jesus, we have these relationships with one another that when one of us is struggling, we're all struggling. When one of us are doing good, we celebrate that together because we belong together. We have that commitment to one another. Listen, how we live out this principle that we belong together is actually a testimony to the power of the gospel. And there are some of us that are at our attitude towards the church shows that we never really got what the gospel is all about. Shows that we have not made a commitment to pursuing the unity of the church, which shows we've not really got what the gospel is pointing us to. We're not responding to the gospel the way God wants us to. When we gossip about one another. When we're arrogant and have self-righteous attitudes towards others in the church. When we think we're better than somebody else. Well, I can't be around that person. Do you know what they've done? I'm not going to talk about what I've done, but do you know what they've done? When we're dismissive over each other because we have these annoyances or these worldly differences. When we hold grudges against one another when we've been wronged. You know what we're doing? We are tearing apart the unity of the church. We are tearing apart the witness of the church in the world. Because when we, when we get this idea that we belong to one another, and we live it out, and we love each other like that, do you realize the world is looking for, for something that is otherworldly? And that's what the church is supposed to be. A group of people like us who come together and we love one another. We're willing to, to live through life together. You know what happens when we live that? In John 17, Jesus prayed on the night that he was betrayed. And he prayed for the church. He prayed for us. And he said, he made this if-then statement. If A happens, and A is not guaranteed to happen, but if A happens, then B will be the result. He prayed and said, if you, if the church, if we would be one, that's A. If we would be one, then the consequence, the result, is not a guarantee that we're going to be one. But if we would be one, Jesus prayed that if we would be one, then the world would know who, who, who God is. Do you see how powerful it is that we as a church, we maintain the unity of the church? That we strive to, to maintain it, to work towards it, to guard the unity of the church? This is the words of Paul. That if we get what Jesus has done for us, then we will walk worthy, walk in a manner worthy of that sacrifice by maintaining the unity of the church. So are you walking with one another in life? As you look around this room, are you willing to bear with one another? Are you willing to extend forgiveness to someone who wrongs you or frustrates you or annoys you? Are you willing to give grace and patience to people whose idiosyncrasies may not line up with your personality? Are you willing to love people as Jesus has loved you. Let me throw this in there. 
are there, as you look around this room, is there anybody that you are harboring ill feelings towards? Is there anybody in this room that just annoys you and you avoid them because they wronged you or because they're annoying to you? Scripture says that as far as possible that we are to live at peace with everyone. And so there are some of you in this room that maybe today, maybe you need to make some things right with somebody in this room. Maybe you need to say, hey, we need to talk because I've held on to this and I need to let this go today. This is hard, but it's totally worth it as we display the power of the gospel. Second thing, second question of application this morning. Are you investing in the building of the church? Listen, when it comes to church, are you a taker? Is church something that you come to because you're going to receive, you're going to get some good coffee, you're going to get great worship, you're going to hear an amazing joke and some mediocre preaching. You come to receive these good things so then you can go home and feel good about yourself? Is that what church is for you? You know, it's funny how people come to church and they're like, ah, oh, man, the church isn't meeting my needs. They're not doing this for me. They're not doing that for me. I'm not being fed in this area. You know, if I can borrow a line from DC Talk, some of you might remember DC Talk. You know, DC Talk had this song that said, love is a verb. You know, maybe, maybe church is a verb. Maybe church isn't something that we go to. Maybe church is something that we do. It's not something we to, are here to receive, but the church is something that we are, something that we do. Because I'll tell you what, the church is going to be all that God wants it to be. If the church is going to accomplish all that God wants us to accomplish, if we're going to make a difference in our city, it's because all of us in this room are investing in each other, investing in the mission of God together. So let me ask you this. Do you know what your spiritual gift is? Do you know how God has wired you to serve? If you're not familiar with spiritual gifts, man, let's talk about it. We did a series a couple years ago. We've got some stuff on our website, restorationyakima.com. You can go out there and hear a couple messages all about spiritual gifts. Jake and I would love to sit down with you and help you discern and figure out what your spiritual gift is. Do you know your spiritual gift? Are you serving the church? Are you serving the body? Or has this been one of those things that you come and you receive? Because I'll tell you what, we've got lots of opportunities for people to serve right here. We've got simple things that don't require much of you. Jake asked this morning, can anybody be a greeter and just welcome people as they walk into the room? Hi, like there's needs all over the place. We have needs for, for people to help make coffee on Sunday morning. We have needs for people to, to help with set up and tear down, for, for pushing next on the slides when they show the, 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 the worship lyrics behind us. And there's a simple things. We have leadership opportunities that need to be met and filled right here at the church. We've got, we've got classes that need teachers to teach. We've got a need for people to help structure and run our, our connection and assimilation process. Man, it'd be great to have someone who owns social media. Like there's all sorts of opportunities to serve the church. Are you serving in the church? You know, what's funny is, is sometimes we come into church and we sit there and we think, we think this, we think, well, the church needs to do this. 
You know, the church needs to do this ministry. They need to do that thing. You know, when you say that, I mean, we can all think about things that we think the church should be doing. When you say, I think the church should be doing this, do you really mean, well, I think somebody else needs to do that so they can serve me? Or what if, by you saying, I think the church needs to do this, what if that was actually you saying, hey, I'd like to help the church do this. I'd like to be a part of meeting this need that I think will serve the body of Christ. And I'll say this, as we talk about investing in building the church, some of y'all, you're just not around enough. Building the church and pursuing unity is kind of like growing a muscle. It takes repetition. It takes time and time and time. Some of you just are not committed enough. You're sporadic on when you show up. Some of you are in the season where you're shopping churches and you're switching from church to church to church because you get upset over something that happens. And I'll tell you what, by doing that, you know what you're doing? You're actually stunting your own faith. You're stunting the growth of your faith and you are stunting the the success of the church. Are you investing in the building of a church? I thought I'd close by getting you a final picture. The movie Finding Nemo, this is a ridiculous application. This is a ridiculous uh, illustration. But in the movie Finding Nemo, there's a bunch of fish that get caught in this net. They're caught in this fisherman's net. They're going to go, they're going to become sushi, which wouldn't be a bad thing. But, you know, that's not what the movie's about. These fish are caught in this net. And what does Nemo do? Nemo says, hey, I remember when I was in the fish tank. And he tells all the fish, hey, we all have to swim down. We all have to swim together in unison and swim down. And sure enough, all the fish start working together. They're swimming down, and they escape the net. And I know that is a ridiculous illustration. But I think that's God's design for the church. That if we're going to accomplish all that God has called us to, to know Christ and make Christ known, if we're going to make a difference in our city, it doesn't come because we have two pastors on staff who come up and lead and talk and do the work of the ministry. No, we will be all that God has called us to be when we prioritize and maintain the unity of the church and we're pursuing that together. And we realize that every one of us is a part of this ministry. This church is not my church. It drives me crazy when people are like, Pastor, your church is, this isn't my church. This isn't Jake's church. You know whose church this is? This is our church. You belong to this church. This is our church. And we will be all that God calls us to be and has for us to do when we are willing to pursue the unity together. And work together to the building of the church and the accomplishment of the mission. So that's what I'm asking you today. Would you make a commitment to pursue the unity of the church together? And would you give of yourself to the building up of the church?